coming up on Philosophy Talk. We think that is a fair and a wise guy for rule to be guided by. What is reality? And we're not afraid of it, are we? Eat it! You bet. Reality has meaning. Reality is meaningless. Emerging levels of reality. The real, the unreal, and the surreal. My reality has meaning. I don't know about yours. Our guest is Tim O'Connor, author of Theism and Ultimate Explanation. Levels of reality. Coming up on Philosophy Talk. After the news. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're coming to you from the studios of KALW San Francisco. Continuing conversations that began at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus. Today, levels of reality. Ken, if you think about it, reality comes in many different levels, each level involving different kinds of things, having different kinds of properties. Some really small, some really big. You know, I imagine that a lot of people, if they start to think about this, they start thinking about dirt as at the bottom level and things like us, you and me, human beings in the middle level, and at the next level, at the highest level, the sky, because it's really big. Well, philosophers have developed a somewhat more sophisticated way of thinking about it, a bit more abstract. Here are some examples of levels of reality. First, you and I, or at least our bodies along with tables and chairs and cities and towns and even planets. These are all what philosophers call the level of medium-sized objects. This is the level of reality that we live in. It's what most of our lives are concerned with. It's the sorts of things we can perceive with our senses and talk about and so forth and so on. Now contrast with that quantum reality. Objects like quarks that we can't see, having properties like spin that most of us don't begin to understand. Yeah, and, and there seem to be more levels in between the middle-sized dry goods that you talked about and the, and the quantum level. There's a level just above quantum physics. That's where we find electrons and atoms. Then there's a level of chemical facts where you find, like, molecules. And then above that, the level of biology where you find cells. And higher levels, too, involving minds and even societies, nations. And if you get really, there's there angels and gods and numbers for that matter. So we've got lots of levels, lots and lots of levels. And, and at each level, philosophers ask, is the whole greater than the sum of its parts? Can it be greater than the sum of its parts? Intuitively, each level has a characteristic kind of object with characteristic kinds of properties. And indeed, a characteristic profession for people who study it, from physicists at the bottom. All the way at the top, you have mathematicians and theologians, for well, example. Yeah, except right, even beyond them, according to Aristotle, at the very, very top, philosophers. He puts philosophers there because we think about being, that's being with a capital B, that is the whole shebang, and we try to figure out how the different levels are related. You know, personally, I don't feel, I feel very much in the middle of things rather than on top of it all. 
But, you know, I do want to think about how the different levels are related. I'm drawn to reductionism. Well, tell me and everyone else what you mean by that, Ken. Well, first of all, let's set God and angels aside. I'm not sure I believe in them, and I wouldn't know what to say about them if I did anyway. And then there are numbers. I also don't know what to say about those. But all the other levels that we've mentioned seem to me really to be just one big reality, one big physical reality. Facts about chemicals really are just facts about atoms and electrons. And facts about atoms and electrons are just really facts about subatomic particles. And so on for all the other higher levels, they seem to me to just reduce to something lower level and ultimately down to physics. The divisions that we perceive are based on how humans interact with the different phenomena, the tools we use, the interests we have, the budgets we, we approve. Ultimately, metaphysically, philosophically, there's just one reality, matter in motion. You've made your view very clear, Ken. Clear, depressing, and mysterious. Me, I I don't feel like a complex of quarks or atoms, like I'm just matter in motion. Luckily, there's another theory. It's a competitor to reductionism, and it's called emergence. That's the idea that at each, each level, in some way, new objects emerge from the ones below, at least under favorable conditions. And when emergence happens, we have truly new kinds of objects, properties, and facts. Now, now Ken, what makes you think reductionism, rather than a more human-friendly view like emergence, is true? Well, take just take an example, biology. Biologists have known since Mendel that something which they called genes was responsible for inherited characteristics. But, you know, for a long time, there were debates about whether genes could really be explained by physical and chemical properties, and many biologists thought it could never happen, and they thought that genes were emergence and not reducible. But you know what? With the discovery of DNA and the development of molecular biology, we know that isn't so. The structures that Watson and Crick uh, discovered have allowed scientists to explain how genes work without appealing to anything but the principles and properties of physics and chemistry. And I think it's going to work like that eventually for all these supposed emergent properties. And whenever philosophers see emergence, it will just be another idea in the dustbin called the history of philosophy. <laughs> well, so you're you're pretty confident. You think we'll have a biological understanding of consciousness and all the other mental phenomena? Is it so obvious to you that that even makes sense? Well, look, I can't tell you ahead of time just how these reductions will look, but I, I believe it's true. I believe it with a with a firm faith. Well, emergence and reductionism, it's, it's a rich topic. Luckily, we have an expert on all of this to help us think about it. Tim O'Connor from Indiana University. And it's not just us talking philosophy. We'd like you to join us as well. The number is 1-800-525-9917. That's 1-800-525-9917. But first, our roving philosophical reporter, Julie Napolin, searches for emergence in a colony of ants. She files this report. At Stanford University, biology professor Deborah Gordon shows me into her lab. Here they are, the little darlings. It's filled with six-foot-long ant farms, and we watch the bugs crawl around test tubes and bits of food. She spends most of her day observing their behavior. In here, you can see the queen, maybe. Does she know that she's the queen, that she's different? No, I don't think she knows anything at all. And they don't know that they're not the queen, either. How they come to be doing what they're doing is the problem that I think about. A group of ants is huddled around a seed, pushing and pulling. They are blind and can't make a collective decision about where to take it. Gordon says this can go on for months. Really what's most impressive to me about ants is the way that individuals can be so inept and bumble around and yet colonies can be so successful. 
Gordon thinks understanding just how ants form a thriving colony without any central command can help us answer questions about how cells interact or neurons fire in our brains. Ants don't accomplish anything through individual talent and intelligence, but instead because of the way that the behavior of ants within the colony is coordinated. Gordon remembers observing an ant colony build a layer of dirt and twigs around a nest to protect it from the rain. Somehow they start doing that without any ant thinking, well, it's raining, we better get going. Hey guys, come over here, it's time to build up the entrance to the nest. So it's hard to imagine how they could do so much without any individual having goals or some sense of what needs to be accomplished, but that's the amazing thing about ants. Uh, it's not as if uh, someone goes out and calls them to come in, uh, because nobody's actually aware of everything that's going on in the colony. Corey Washington is getting his PhD in neurobiology at Columbia. He used to be a philosophy professor, and then one day, he discovered ants. That was pretty much the, the beginning of the end for me in philosophy. Washington realized that ants pose some really big questions about why we value the individual so much in society. We do have, a, I think, a somewhat exaggerated view of what it means to be a free an individual. We have this picture that an individual is free and is operating on all this information and has these beliefs and desires that allow the individual to, to do uh, these independent things. And the individual is clearly much more influenced by their surroundings than most people would like to admit. And so I think the more we see, it's, you know, it's not only that you get intelligence emerging outside of acts of individuals, but each of the individuals is in turn influenced by the group that they're part of in ways that the individual is not at all aware of. So in a way, the individual person is like an ant colony. What separates people from ants, says Deborah Gordon, is that we think we know what we're doing. Well, one really important difference between ants and people is that people always have some idea about what they're doing and why. Even if they're wrong, that idea is really important. Whereas ants seem to move around their world and do what they need to do without any sense of why they're doing it. And yet they manage to do really well. You could even say that in some ways they're doing better than we are. Once again, Corey Washington. We have a picture of ourselves as a unified intelligence, but really we're not. We are a bunch of different, our brain is a, consists of a bunch of different areas uh, that may work together as modules. And the idea that there's a unified intelligence coming out is itself kind of an illusion. It's almost an intuitive picture that we have ourselves, that we impose in the world. And that picture really isn't true of ourselves or, or probably much of anything else. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Julie Napolin. I'm John Perry, and with me is Ken Taylor. And our guest today is Tim O'Connor. He's professor of philosophy at Indiana University, author of Theism and Ultimate Explanation. Tim, welcome to Philosophy Talk. Thanks. Hi, Ken. John? Tim, uh, tell us briefly, what led you to the topic of emergence? Well, uh, as a philosopher, I want to think about the big picture of things, uh, to understand the how and the why of the way things hang together. But as a human being, I want to understand myself and others in more practical terms, how we tick and uh, what our moral significance is. These two interests come together in thinking about the nature of the mind, our subjective experience, our thoughts, the choices we make in acting on the world. 
Um, the, the idea that physical reality has levels can be applied outside the human sphere, of course, in chemistry, biology, and so on. But it's the application to human beings that most interests me. So, so from the kind of Olympian level that us philosophers, we philosophers like to take, what, what do you see as the most likely candidates for, for sciences or realms of being that can't be reduced to lower levels, the, the, the most plausible cases for emergence? Uh, fundamentally, the human mind, uh, our conscious experience, our thought, our emotions, uh, even uh, our, our will, um, uh, these, these things seem to have characteristics that we can't plausibly suppose to be identical to uh, any kind of complex physical states as they would have to be were uh, reduction, a reductionist picture true. So suppose it turned out, Tim, just to get back to your animating concern about human beings and human experience and all that. Suppose it turned out that it was all just matter in motion, complex organizations of matter in motion, and that ultimately you could explain it in those terms, right? And it just turned out that we had a partial view of it. We needed more concepts. And after we got those more concepts, we said, ah, yes, it's really just, you know, uh, matter in the void moving about. Well, why would that be such a big deal? I mean, would I mean we would still get consciousness and emotion and all that stuff in reality? It would just be in there in a different way that we th- than what we thought. Why why would it be a big deal if reductionism were true? Well, when it comes to uh, I, saying that reductionism were true about our conscious experiences and thoughts, um, it, this is a very difficult idea. I. For, for me to even contemplate, it's to say that uh, the way that we understand our, our own conscious states is fundamentally an illusion. Uh, so there's a kind of paradoxical aspect to embracing the reductionist vision, well, it seems no, to not me. Not an illusion, just a partial, incomplete characterization. We do have emotions. We are conscious beings. But it turns out that how those get into nature and how they sit in nature, we weren't really aware of that. And now science teaches us, oh, that's how it works. Would that really be a big deal? Uh, well, it, what is it going to tell us about the the, the characteristics of our, of our experiences, right? The way a blue sky looks on a sunny day, uh, the feeling of puzzlement I have when I consider a, a philosophical conundrum. Um, if it tells me that if I'm asked to embrace a view that says this is identical, in fact, to a highly complex neurophysiological state whose properties I'm completely oblivious to uh, when I'm undergoing such a state... Uh, then uh, it seems to me it's talking about a different sort of thing. So, uh, so, you're, so you, 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 your problem isn't just discomfort with the idea. It's that you think there's real good philosophical arguments against it. We're going to dig into this uh, uh, after the break. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. Today we're discussing levels of reality with Tim O'Connor, author of Theism and Ultimate Explanation. We've been talking about the difference between reductionism and emergence. Next, we're going to consider the special case of mind and matter. Is mind really reducible to matter? Is your mind just a bunch of cells, which are a bunch of chemicals, which are a bunch of atoms, which are a bunch of quarks? Where would that leave you and me? Are humans just sort of a convenient way of organizing talks about atoms in motion, like Ken thinks? How do you feel about that? Join us by calling toll-free at 1-800-525-9917. That's 1-800-525-9917. Or email us at comments at philosophytalk.org. Or today you can go to our blog, the blog.philosophytalk.org, and leave a live comment in real time and show the whole world what you think about emergence. Emergence, reductionism, matter, and mind when Philosophy Talk continues. If that's all there is. 
Is physical reality all there is? Is it time to break out the booze and have a ball? But consider your current thoughts as you listen to philosophy talk, or focus on your feelings of hunger or anger or happiness. Are these really just physical states of atoms, a bit of electrical phenomena in the neurons of your brain? Or are you more than that? I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. Does the idea of emergence make sense to you? Do you believe f basic physical reality is all there is, ultimately? The toll-free number is 1-800-525-9917. That's 1-800-525-9917. If you want to mail, email us a private comment, share it just with us, and we might put it on the air, comments at philosophytalk.org. If you want a public comment to share it with the world, go to our blog, the blog.philosophytalk.org, and make a comment on our live blog. Our guest is Tim O'Connor from Indiana University. So, Tim, I got that you think that the mental phenomena won't be like just strictly reduced to physical phenomena, unlike the way biology, at least some people think, has been or might be reduced to chemistry, physical chemistry. But why do you think that? Why do you think the mental won't be reduced to the to the physical? Main well, reason. Our, our, our Right. Our, our, our experiences, are, um, uh, all of our conscious states seem to have qualities or characteristics uh, that, have, um, that are radically distinctive, um, that the, the subjective you know, feeling of puzzlement, that's not a kind of characteristic uh, that we encounter in um, studying inanimate uh, matter out in the world or that we just observe through ordinary use of our senses. And it's th these characteristics seem fairly simple, fairly unstructured, and so it, it, they seem to be something wholly unlike what they would have to be if reductionism were true, which is uh, highly complex, hierarchically organized structures uh, of of, pro of particles and their properties. So, so and Tim, Tim, your 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 view is is a very old one, and I must say it has a lot of distinguished adherents, uh, you know, from Descartes right up to David Chalmers, but. Sure. So, so let's take a concrete example. So I, I, I eat a chocolate chip cookie, and I have this taste in my mouth. I mean, it's not really in my mouth. It's in my consciousness. And it's a really fantastic taste, and it's a much different taste than I would have had if I'd eaten some cardboard or something like that. And that, it's hard to imagine that as just being a bunch of electric, electrical activity in my brain. I admit that. It, it seems to be something more. But there's a problem if it's something more. Does that mean that the physical world isn't, so to speak, causally closed, or is, or is this this little consciousness thing just something that that comes along and doesn't do anything? That's a problem that the philosophers, with your view, have had to deal with. Where do you come down on it? Yeah. So uh, I would say certainly um, any states that that we undergo uh, make a difference in the world. They 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 do affect how we act. So we don't want to say that they they. Um, are just there riding along for the show. Uh, but the emergentist says that these are having these conscious states is a causal result of uh, our, our bodies, or in particular our nervous systems, being organized and functioning in the right sort of way. So they don't just appear. There is a causal continuity, but it's not a, a, a flat causal continuity. Everything is physical particles doing what they always do, no matter what context they're embedded in. It's the idea that under certain circumstances, when matter is hierarchically organized in, in the right sort of way, and you have to sort of study the world to find out what the right sort of way is, uh, it, it gives rise to properties, causally gives rise to uh, these sorts of properties that in turn uh, impact the, the, 
the behavior of the system that well, has them. Well, intuitively, so, that seems right. I mean, the fact that the chocolate chip cookie has this wonderful taste is what causes me uh, to, uh, to, to desire another one, to stop by the cookie store next time I'm downtown. But if, if it has any causal effect, doesn't that mean that the physical reality underlying it left some slack so there's some room for the experience to do? And, and then it doesn't, doesn't that violate the way we're taught that the physical world is just kind of a closed system? Uh, it, it does violate a certain vision um, that that we're that we're often taught. Uh, certainly, philosophers are often taught uh, thinking the way the world is causally closed is uh, beha- matter behaves uh, fundamental matter particles, whatever the fundamental level of reality might be, behaves in a certain way in any and all contexts. And uh, so, there's just a, a causal flow through time, no matter how aggregated matter might be in certain stable structures like human beings. And uh, but th- you can you can embrace the idea that everything bubbles up from the the fundamental level, while saying that at times there 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 are these hidden dispositions, if you like, in the fundamental mm. sh- constituents of the world that, uh, in the right kind of organized context, kick in, give rise to these other features Tim, that in turn. Tim, yeah. let me let me stop you and see if I if I'm with you for a second. Look, John is going back to what a lot of people believe. You know, physical things, physical. Events have physical causes and cause other physical events, right? And the world and the physics doesn't doesn't allow any interference from outside that physical system. And he's wondering if emergentism doesn't violate that that idea that the physical causes the physical is caused by the physical. Nothing spooky happens in the physical world. Old-fashioned Cartesian dualists seem like they were really stuck with this problem, right? Now somehow you're saying that your version of emergentism escapes from the worry that the physical has these outside interventions in it. And I, you, uh, you said a lot of things, but I didn't quite, I didn't quite follow <laughs> how, the, how, you're, how you're making the world safe for the physical. Are you trying to make the world safe for the physical, or are you, or are you saying that there really are outside forces that intervene in the physical? I, I wasn't sure. Uh, good question, uh, and this, this is precisely this question that uh, causes people to find the idea of emergence mysterious. Uh, what I am saying is the, the, the physical is the source of everything that happens, including uh, ultimately the source, uh, including um, a human mentality and human agency in the world. Uh, but it's possible that physical causes give rise to a kind of factor that supplement those very physical causes that uh, gave birth to them. Let me give you an, an analogy, see if we got it right. Okay. Yeah. So think of, an, think of a nation. Well, what is a nation? It's a collection of people being related, doing, doing things every now and then, right? It's just a collection of people in a way, right? Because you can't have a nation without the collection of people. And put the collection of people together and organize them in the right way, and you got a nation. But obviously, is, is this the kind of thought? Obviously, a nation does things that no, no, no citizen of the nation does and that just no subset of the nation does. I mean, the nation goes to war. Right, as a nation, not as these got Jones and Smith. Right, is that the kind of thing you have in mind? Is that a good illustration? No, I'd, I'd be careful not to push uh, analogies too far because I don't want to turn emergence into something that is really rather innocuous in the end. Um, we have no reason to think that nations exert a fundamental kind of causality in the world uh, that over and above the activity of all the individual members, citizens, uh, interacting with their, their 
their environment, their land, and their right. Well, how, so, 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 so I, that, I, I find that to be a, a, a not a good analogy. Oh, so it's different we, than the way nations relate to their citizens. It's there's some extra oomph that you get. Well, how, how about the how about the ant colony that we heard about? Uh, an ant colony you're clearly going to use predicates about the ant colony that just. Ha- if you just studied the individual ant, you'd never come up with. Is that a better analogy? Uh, it could be. Uh, th- what's clear, uh, what no one disputes, is that uh, that matter organizes itself in the world into s- kinds of structures, chemical structures, biological structures, like, and, and then even uh, social biological structures like ant colonies. And there, you can understand the behavior of uh, these systems uh, without understanding the underlying physics, they they take on their own sort of laws of of behavior. That's clear. Uh, the question then is whether we ought to suppose that some of the principles that get invoked in understanding, say, the social behavior of ants, are refer to fundamental causal factors over and above what's going on ultimately at a microscopic right. level throughout all of the ants. You're, that I think is a that's a that's a that would be a big assumption. I wouldn't make that assumption while not. Uh, foreclosing the possibility. I get it. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're talking about levels of reality with Tim O'Connor from Indiana University. We'd like you to join this discussion. 1-800-525-9917. That's 1-800-525-9917. Or email us at comments at philosophytalk.org or go to our blog, the blog.philosophytalk.org and and leave a comment on our live blog entry. And Christian in San Jose is on the line. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Christian. Uh Aha. I'm glad to be with you. Well, we're glad to have you. So what's your comment or question? Uh, it seems like uh, the fundamental thought of emergence is that uh, you have some initial conditions on a system, and then with the right initial conditions, you just turn the crank long enough, and out will pop something, this emergence intelligence maybe. Uh, I have another uh, non-deterministic possibility, which is also physical. Some uh, physicists have recently uh, talked about uh, free will being a fundamental characteristic of subatomic particles. It's just a comment. Uh, how does that fit into the idea of, uh, of mind and matter if subatomic particles have free will? It's a crazy idea. I'm just wondering what you all think about that. Okay, well, uh, we're going to ask Tim what he thinks about that. Thanks for the, uh, thanks for the call, Christian. Tim, what do you think about either of uh, Christian's thoughts there? Uh, yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm not uh, terribly disposed to think that subatomic particles might have free will. Um, I'm just hoping that human beings do. Uh, but uh, I think the, the idea that uh, Christian is referring to there is um, some ways that, uh, a a certain way that physicists have of thinking about quantum mechanics, our science of the most small, uh, involves uh, the the idea that um, uh, conscious experience in the act of measuring what's going on somehow influences the behavior of those particles. But um, that's not the only way to think about what's going on there. It's it's a controversial, so I'd say that that's a confusing uh, controversial area that we need more clarity on before we're in, really in a position to say what, how we ought to think about that. Okay, Tim, now, as you talk, I think I mischaracterized you before because I kind of assimilated you to, to dualists like Descartes and Chalmers. Now, it sounds like you've really got a, a, a kind of a, a, I don't know if we'd call it physicalism, but but something closer, not a dualism. That is, you think that here here's matter, 
which is the physical reality as we understand it when we think about, uh, you know, ordinary objects and what we've discovered by taking them apart and putting them under microscopes. But something we'd never notice that we did that is always there, some deep disposition such that in certain complex circumstances, uh, something that we wouldn't notice, namely consciousness, emerges. But it, but it's but it's not just like something a new fact in the world. It's 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 just something that comes out of facts that were already there, but doesn't show up until there's a certain complex structure. So that in a way you could say it's 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 not that there's something that isn't in physics. It's something that we'd never know about if we didn't have consciousness to think about. Is that more close to your view? Uh, it is true that the emergentist is trying to straddle between uh, a kind of straight physicalism that, uh, and a strong sort of dualism of the sort Descartes proposed. But I, I would say it's a kind of dualism uh, because of uh, at least my, my sort of emergentist who, who thinks that uh, conscious psychological properties are, are very different from any kind of physical property. It's true that the seeds, you might say on the emergentist vision, the seeds of these uh, properties coming into being and having their influence was there all along. Uh, had matter never organized itself so that life came about, we might not, we, we would have never seen uh, those properties in the world, but the potentiality for them was was there all along. But still, they're, they're a radically distinctive kind of thing. I mean, some people define dual, dualism as the view that uh, mental states are a fundamental kind of feature, a basic feature in the world, and uh, I, I think that's so. So, um, that so, is it. so yes. I, I hate to keep... Uh, reducing these uh, these subtle issues to very mundane things. But let's just suppose that it's a law of nature, a law of consciousness, that anybody, any normal person, will be uh, who, who experiences the taste of a chocolate chip cookie will enjoy it and want to have that taste again. I mean, that's probably not quite right, although I don't see how it couldn't be right. Now, what, what status does that law have? I mean, it, it apparently doesn't follow from all the physical facts that make up the guy's brain. Uh, but if it's a new law, it looks like to, 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 to implement it, some of those little molecules are going to have to go this way rather than that way the next time this guy comes to a, a chocolate chip cookie store. So, so how does this work? Does the new level of consciousness kind of push back on the physical and add some new laws? Uh, well, I'd say supplement rather than supplant, right? The physical, the basic physical laws that are operative everywhere, whether in living human beings or, or in just a, a lump of wood, are, are still there, are still doing their thing. And uh, then we have conscious states of various kinds having whatever their distinctive influence on, on the brain is. Uh, but it is, it is a new law. But the, the key is that the, the potential for it was there uh, all along, it's just you would never know about it. Uh, yeah. So look, I I I'm getting a better picture. I'm still I I still have some objections, but I'm, I I don't know. But the basic picture seems to be this: you think that matter, by organizing itself and complexifying itself, gets new. It's not just new properties, because anybody thinks an ensemble of things has properties that the things disaggregated don't have, right? It's not just that they have new properties. They have new fundamental properties, properties that can't be reduced to the properties or explained in terms of the properties of the stuff out of which they're constituted, right? I mean, right. so it really is that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. 
And uh, that's a, that's an intriguing idea, but I just still find it mysterious. You know, can you help me not find this mysterious? Is it just my old reductionism kind of hanging on or something? I'm just yeah. Well, well, ask your, let's ask ourselves why if if we're tempted by a kind of reductionist picture, why we think it's so. Uh, well, we say well, physicists have uh, very well confirmed um, understanding of how matter behaves uh, in the laboratory. Right, and what it, what is it that they, they they do to try to confirm those most fundamental physical laws? Well, they try to isolate very small numbers of particles uh, and see how they interact, and 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 so and they come up with just laws, descriptions of uh, the properties and the and the way those properties interact with each other. Right, but that's dealing with matter in a very low level decomposed. I agree. State. I agree. But when you why com- suppose that it automatically generalizes to everything? Well, that's when a you really compose radical it, idea. But when you compose it, you explain the properties of the big thing in terms of the properties that it's composed out of in their organization, and then that's all you have to do. But you're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're discussing levels of reality with Tim O'Connor, author of Theism and Ultimate Explanation. Levels of reality uh, and what's come to call emergence are basically the question whether wholes can be more than the sums of their parts. Are you more than the physical parts that go to make you up? We've talked about emergence in general and the special case of mind and matter. We're going to continue by asking whether we can think of how emergence and religion and God work together. Does, that, does emergence help you be more religious? Does it make more room for, uh, for a religion when philosophy talk continues? We're talking about different levels of reality. Does it make sense to think of, of the mind as something that emerges from matter? If, if we believe in this kind of emergence, will it, will it give us room to have religion somehow? Uh, will, will, can we think of God as emergent? I'm John Perry. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Ken Taylor. Our guest is Tim O'Connor from Indiana University, author of Theism and Ultimate Explanation. And we've got somebody who's left a comment on our live blog. That's Mike. I don't know where Mike's from, but he says the following, Tim, isn't emergence just a word for laymen to oversimplify the complexities of the world? I mean, to add on to this, is the verb emerge like the verb create that creationists know and love? Seems profound, but doesn't explain anything. So he's a little mm, unmoved so far. What what would you say to uh, Mike? Well, you uh, know, in, in a way, he's right. I mean, the very the, just the simple idea of emergence, especially coming from a philosopher who's not especially well trained in the sciences, uh, doesn't uh, give you anything like a uh, a detailed picture of how we're supposed to understand it. Um, so, uh, what what would be needed to put flesh on the, these bones would be for a scientist uh, working on, uh, say, say, human conscious experience to uh, be able to understand what's going on in fundamental physical terms and what's going on in the neurons of my brain and see in concrete terms what kind of difference uh, conscious experience actually makes conceived, conceived as something irreducible. Uh, but that, that's a job for the sciences. Uh, from a philosopher, philosophers just generate the, the broad idea. So, so Tim, you, the title of your book is Theism and Ultimate Explanation, which, which suggests that uh, maybe you think that the concept of emergence is not only sort of human-friendly, but is of interest in terms of understanding some of our deepest religious impulses and possibly insights. Is emergence a religion-friendly philosophical view? 
emergence is, of course, not a, not a religious idea in any sense, but um, it might be religion-friendly in the sense of um, you consider the common religious concerns of survival of death uh, and the, uh, the moral status of human beings, uh, whether or not human beings have a, some kind of very distinctive special moral status. Uh, if emergentism were true, as against some kind of big, basically reductionist picture, it, it might be easier to understand these things, the, the possibility that I might survive death and uh, why it is that I have special moral significance <laughs> as against some, some, it, something in my environment that's inanimate. Well, now, now let me ask a slightly different question. There, there, there are some ideas in, in, uh, in other cultures related to other religions, like in Buddhism, that, that emphasize what uh, we might call a, a kind of neutral conception uh, of things. They say, well, both the physical world and the mental world are different ways of getting at the same reality. Uh, is, is your concept of emergence related to those ideas at all? No, I, I, I don't think so, because uh, I, I, I do want uh, um, emergent features of reality, the way I'm thinking of it, to, to do some real work uh, right there in the physical world. I, w I want to understand the world as, as a unified entity uh, that hangs together in some important way. And uh, that, that, that the, the idea that, well, there are these two incompatible but uh, complementary uh, perspectives on the world um, is not really getting at this idea that, of of emergent states having a making a difference in the physical we've world got, itself. Uh, we've got more callers on the line. Shisa in San Francisco. Welcome Hi, to the Roswell Talk, Shisa. Shisa in San Francisco. Okay, Shisa. I um, dreamt this proverb that sinking uh, in is the source of spiraling out, and spiraling out is the source of sinking in, so that you, it, the question is, can you uh, kind of merge those two, which is coming into thread with what you're saying right at this moment? Uh, Shesla, thanks <laughs> for the. What do you think, Tim? Right? I mean, it sounds to me like a question, to put it in philosophical terms, it sounds to me like a question of downward causation. One of the things that people, because the higher, you know, the lower affects the higher, which in turn affects the lower, which in turn affects the higher. Some people think that's one of the problems of the emergency. You know, like high-level stuff like my consciousness, which you say isn't reducible, can affect, causally affect, the low-level stuff like the material world, the quarks and glue on stuff. Well, well, what I get out of Shess's comment, which it, it, it might be something a little bit different, which is it's hard to take into account that we, the investigators and thinkers, have a place in this whole system. Right. We are medium-sized objects. Right. So how do we filter out the fact that we are medium-sized objects thinking about these these uh, atoms and and so forth? How do how do we you know yeah, how do how yeah. do we handle that? How do we know that these problems that Tim isn't bringing up aren't related to this particular perspective we have on the physical world? So now, Tim, I think we've given you enough to yeah, think about and respond to. Yeah. clear all this up for yeah. us, will you? Right. Um, uh, uh, the, the problem is we can't fully extricate ourselves from our conception of uh, how we think about the world because uh, we start from our own conscious experiences, our own perspective on the world. I, I know my own experiences better than I know even what's going on in the immediate environment around me, the physical environment around me. Um, so I can't somehow adopt a perspective on the world, uh, at least if I'm trying to understand my evidence for the way the, the world is, uh, that totally... Um, negates that. So um, I, 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 I do think we, we have to bring them together. I don't think it's simply a matter of different 
differing but complementary perspectives. We have to integrate the two. All right, we've got another caller on the line, Arlington and Berkeley. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Arlington. Hi. What's your comment or question? Well, I'm not too good at putting things together, but it seems to me like you folks are all talking about us looking at the universe, and what I kind of thought is the universe began as quarks and muons and whatever, and built up into more complex things, and finally, organisms like us. And now the universe can think about itself. There's a particle that was in our brain, thinking, and thinking about the universe, was really part of a rock, basically. Yeah. And now that rock can think about itself. But through us, the universe has become so complex that it has achieved a level at which it can analyze itself and think about itself. Uh, Arlington, I, I, thanks for the call. I think you're under something very, very profound, dude. I think it's very <laughs> profound. We are part of this quantum soup, and, consci- and I believe consciousness and all that arises out of this quantum soup. And, and then we've got this pro- problem. We're not manifest to ourselves as just part of the quantum soup, and it's hard for us to figure out how we could just be part of the quantum soup. And so there is a puzzle, but you know what, uh, Tim? I think it's just an epistemological problem. There's no deep metaphysics here. Ultimately, we and consciousness and thinking and feeling are part of the quantum soup. How could it be otherwise, man? Sounds pretty deep to me. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, um, respond I, to me and uh, and Arlington. Yes, uh, well, I think I, I I agree that Arlington's onto the the nub of the issue um, because it doesn't. It, so so here we have a bit of the world uh, that gets organized, congealed together, and suddenly begins to be thinking about itself and the rest of the world. And this is something new in the world when this first begins to happen, whether it's with human beings or some other kinds of beings that we we don't know anything about. And uh, but it doesn't. It just doesn't think that consciously thinking about. Um, it, it doesn't seem that just consciously thinking about uh, the world could be wholly. It could be something that's just more of the same. It, it seems like a very distinctive new kind of phenomenon. It seems something over and above uh, particles obeying laws of motion. And if you think that, then then you've got now you're you're on your way towards an emergentist view. Uh, but whereas if you're like Ken uh, and you say, I, I just I, I don't think that thought is anything. It's it's just anything distinctive. Um, it's it might be an interesting scientific question of just thought has to be complicated, uh, just what thought consists in. But there's no deep uh, fundamental, the new kind of phenomena going on here. Then then you're not going to be friendly to the emergentist idea. So, so of course, one possible explanation is that, that Ken is just an automaton and really has never had experiences and doesn't realize how fundamentally different they are from everything else. But I suppose that's unlikely. We have an interesting email here from uh, uh, Ron in Florida. Another great show. Thank you. Thank you, Ron. Is our guest's ideas about emergence in the human consciousness similar to John Searle's argument regarding the Chinese room? Searle seems to argue that consciousness can only form special arrangements of neurons, uh, can only occur with special arrangements of neurons, and that it's sort of an emergent phenomenon. I'd say uh, Searle's Chinese room argument is an argument against uh, certain conceptions of artificial intelligence. He he argues that... uh, uh, he can imagine himself being a messenger in a room that that kind of does everything necessary to translate Chinese sentences given an input into English or vice versa. 
Uh, but that wouldn't mean he know, knew Chinese. The, the details of that argument aren't too important. But 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 do you see an analogy between your view and Searle's? Uh, yeah, as best I can understand him. I mean, he, he's got nice provocative analogies uh, and, and, and pictures for thinking about these issues. Um, I'm not sure that I uh, fully follow um, exactly how he's thinking about it, but it's in the neighborhood, definitely. There's a, there's a way of reading what he's up to there that sounds just just like what the emergentist might want to be saying. Well, you know, I, I, well, see, Searle's another guy I find mysterious. So if you're saying that you're in the neighborhood of Searle, so, you know, but here, here's a thought I have for you. Let's, you and I agree that consciousness is real. It's really real. And what we disagree on is whether it's fundamental or not. I say it's not fundamental. It happens because matter complexifies itself in a certain way, and it follows from the complexification. You say matter complexifies it certain way, way itself in a certain way, and it's sort of added somehow, right? Is this really a big deal? If I turned out to be right, would you go wailing and moaning and saying, oh, my God, human beings aren't really anything, really? Would you really go wailing and moaning over that discovery? Well, think about why we, uh, our, our moral assessment of human beings. We, we hold one another accountable. We uh, both praiseworthy and blameworthy for what we do because we think that our choices and actions make a difference in the world. And if that difference that, we, that, that our, those choices is, that consists in, is simply more you know, comple- complicated variations on uh, mindless atoms, uh, uh, doing their thing, obeying uh, laws of motion. It's it, this seems to really deflate the uh, what we're talking about. Uh, so that that's one area where I think it would make a, a profound difference. Well, on that note, uh, I'm going to have to thank you for joining. It's been, been a wonderful conversation. Thanks. Our guest has been Tim O'Connor, professor of philosophy from Indiana University, author of Theism and Ultimate Explanation. So, John, are you an emergentist? Have you been uh, converted? Uh, Well, I've written a little poem about my views, Ken. I'll read it to you. Life is mysterious and rather short. Philosophy is fun, a nonviolent sport. We sit above all of reality playing our game, but we'll return to dust all the same. (laughs) Oh, wait a minute now. Is that a pro-emergentist poem or an anti-emergentist? That's an ambivalent poem. (laughs) Yeah. Is that how you feel about emergentism? Ambivalent? I mean, there's something, there's certainly something to the idea that there are things that have properties like minds, like consciousness, right, that aren't straightforwardly identifiable with the properties of little things or assemblages of little things, right, at least not to us. But I'm just not convinced. I'm not convinced, and I have never been any at all convinced that there's some deep metaphysical distinction between these higher-level properties and those lower-level properties. Well, you know, uh, I, I find the arguments for uh, uh, the irreducibility of consciousness, uh, something like emergentism, property dualism, uh, very attractive, but not in the end. I don't think they work. I tend to get more drawn to the, to the the intricacies of the arguments than the metaphysics. And at least uh, as of now, I'm unconvinced. So I'm kind of a reluctant physicalist, uh, whereas you're an enthusiastic physicalist. Well, this conversation continues on our Facebook page, where you can join our our growing, ever growing uh, community of of fans. So give it a try. For the final word on emergent realities, we turn to a man who definitely operates on his own level of reality, Ian Scholes, the 60-second philosopher. Ian Scholes, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts is the gist of the slippery concept we call emergence, but you might say the whole of emergence is greater than the sum of its summary. For one thing, for a whole to be called emergent, it must contain what is called supervenience. In other words, not only is the emergent entity greater than the sum of its parts and depends on the sum of its parts for its very existence, it has a downward effect on the sum of its parts. 
Take the emergent behavior we call the flocking of birds. For instance, not only is the flock greater than the birds it contains, but birds behave differently when they are in a flock. Emergence is a hot trope these days. Emergentism is itself in a kind of re-emergence. Emergence is especially being trotted out when it comes to consciousness because it seems to hold a clue to the mind-body problem. That is, is consciousness merely another physical event, just neurons firing? Well, okay, we have A, the brain, B, the neurons firing. Emergentists hold that this results in AB, a mental event that is not identical to a brain event, but instead emerges from it. So it's not merely physical anymore, but something different. What? We don't know. So emergence doesn't really answer the mind-body problem, but it does give us a whole new cocked hat in which to throw it. This kind of stuff makes my brain hurt, frankly, and has the potential to turn me into a reader of Deepak Chopra. But while philosophers are busy in the problem of consciousness and even bigger questions, like whether God himself or herself or itself could be the biggest emergence of them all, emergentism has trickled down and is applied to more lowly pursuits, economics, for example. Capitalism began with goods and services in one hand and capital on the other. From this emerged the marketplace. Until recent events emerged, the prevailing economic philosophy was, leave it alone, the marketplace is mysterious, nobody can pretend to understand it, and if we tinker with it, we'll just mess it up. All we can do is try to identify market forces and predict what will happen. This has led to pundits, economic advisors, tipping points, demographic studies, bubbles, recessions, depressions, and superstores. Still in all, emergentism may just be another form of magical thinking, and we should be careful about where we apply the principle. Hydrogen may join with oxygen to make water emerge, for example, but when I emerge from a car, I am not of the car unless I've been on an accident and the jaws of life need to be applied to the emerged car in me. But even then, it's more of an inconvenience than a supervenience, less of an emergence and more of an emergency. I gotta go. Ian shows the only man who can solve a philosophical problem in 60 seconds. Philosophy Talk is a presentation of Ben Manila Productions and the trustees of Leland Stanford Junior University, copyright 2008. Our executive producer is David Demarest. Our production coordinator is Devin Strolovich. Daniel Elstein is our director of research. Lael Weiss is our webmaster. Also thanks to Zoe Corneli, Merle Kessler, Corey Goldman, and Mark Stone. Support for Philosophy Talk comes from the Templeton Foundation. And from various groups at Stanford University, the Friends of Philosophy Talk, and the members of KALW San Francisco, where our program originates. The views expressed or misexpressed in this program do not necessarily represent the opinions of Stanford University or of our other funders. The conversation continues on our website, philosophytalk.org. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. Thank you for listening. And thank you for thinking.